0: Terms and conditions apply.
1: Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Um, We're dropping this on Thanksgiving. Uh, Cincinnati just played and dominated Louisville, who, I mean, that's an old-school rivalry, right? You go back, Metro, Conference, uh, was it Great American Conference, Conference USA in the Big East? Uh, I, I mean, I would guess. I would guess that when the as the conferences continue to expand, contract, and whatever, it would make sense at some point. Louisville and the ACC. If the ACC has any weaknesses or things break off, wouldn't be crazy to see Louisville join the the Big Twelve, where they could get back to playing against Cincinnati. And, uh, obviously West Virginia already, already in the league, but, uh, but I, I, bring up Cincinnati because Wes Miller is our guest on this pod. And, you know, it's interesting, um, this podcast, and I truly appreciate so many of you who have, uh, for the last, how many years have been doing this? Wow, almost, almost five years, four years been doing this, this pod. Um, you understand that, that sports is not just about the sport. It's about the journey the relationships, the stories, um, the personal growth, you know, all the hard stuff <laughs> it takes you know, to have success. And generally, we've had very, very successful people. and it's just, you know, I love listening to stories, stories of success. I was just in uh, in, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I was uh, talking with uh, Tom Holiday, who's um, former head coach at Oklahoma State, former head coach at NC State. Pitching coach for Augie Garrido at Texas, and obviously his sons have been incredibly successful. Josh is an outstanding coach at OSU as the head coach, and uh, then his son, other son, Matt, was a seven-time All-Star and four-time Silver Slugger, and then his grandson, Jackson, was just the number one overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft, And but, you know, it's like, um, I, you know, I, when I, we weren't talking fastballs and hitting curveballs and whatever, we are talking, telling stories and Augie Doritos stories that were amazing, you know? Um, and I, I, I shared stories of my own with, with Thanksgiving here, I can only tell you, I, I don't know how it works now. There are so many Thanksgiving tournaments that I'm sure there are a lot of places where uh, you come home from a tournament and you have today off or you have something like today. But I, I do, of, of the things you miss about playing, Um, Thanksgiving practice, (laughs) uh, it was actually kind of one of them, right? Because you're you're sitting there and you're working out. It used to be, I mean, this is, this is what happened at, at Notre Dame. And it's what happened to Oklahoma state too. Oklahoma state. We didn't do the night practice. Um, but it would always be a really, really hard practice. And then, you know, you had nothing, nobody's around in town. And then you had some form of dinner together at Notre Dame. We all broke off. I went to one of the coaches' houses. I went to Terry Tyler's house. Uh, Terry, of course, played in the NBA. He Played actually for Dick Vitale with the the Detroit Pistons. Was an all time great guy. All and he, I think it was his first year as being an assistant. He had just been married, and you know, so it was like his wife's first Thanksgiving, and she she killed it. She made awesome food, and uh, and then the next few year, next three years at Oklahoma State. I think one year we might have been in Hawaii. Um, no, I, I maybe all three years. I think we were at, at the Country Club, and um, I, Patsy Sutton, um, who has also passed on with with Coach Sutton, she would come up to each player, and she said, "You know, I, I left a note on your, you know, at your locker, like a little sticky note of locker, and it was just." Um, uh, what's your favorite Thanksgiving recipe and who should I call to get it? And, um, it's, it's, you know, like the thing I love about basketball, to be totally honest, I mean, obviously the game and, and the movement, the spacing and the roar of the crowd and winning road games and even losing games. Now you think back and there's all the lessons learned, but the other part is I, I grew up, um, in a house where you know my mom and dad are from the East coast and Jewish parents, but my dad had traveled everywhere with basketball. And so he was, you know, he had learned about all these cultures in, in, in the United States at, at this point, you know, he became more of a world traveler following me around in basketball and then even more so afterwards. And they traveled some uh, when I was little, but um, you know, uh, and then, you know, my mom was a, had, we'd had people from all over the country stay at the house, but, you know, it's not like, not like when I was at Thanksgiving, I remember, you know, being at a, a black family's house or a mixed race family's house or anybody from any other backgrounds house. Cause you know, as a kid, you're always with your, your family on Thanksgiving. So the idea of like, you just, there, there's some like purple jello dessert thing. I don't know. Several of my teammates had it and I liked it. Um, Even the addition, and i have like add this, it's more kind of Southern than it is uh, uh, across racial backgrounds, but um, candied yams and macaroni and cheese, very much a staple of Thanksgiving when those guys got a chance to pick their favorite. So now, like when I make Thanksgiving dinner, I always have candied yams, uh, collard greens, and, and macaroni and cheese. Uh, and and for the record, my mom makes some mean collard greens. She has a great recipe and I make that recipe myself. That that precludes anything <laughs> in college. The, the point is like, you know, I, I really know those guys and know a lot about them, but also know about their cultures. And it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I, I just, I've always struggled. I think you guys who have followed my career and listen to me, I've always struggled with anybody who has some sort of issue with somebody else because a race, because I don't know, when you're playing basketball, you may, you may make a, a, uh, a stereotype of their, st- of their level of athleticism based upon their race, but there's no real negative connotation to any other part. Like, like this, like people acting like, I, I, I don't understand anyone being having some sort of racial bias against one person or another i don't like all of all of the things that people are claiming exist so much in sports i don't think i i ever saw i just didn't you know yeah i would be the white guy on a lot of teams but like that so (laughs) he treated me any different i never treated anybody else different because of the color of their skin so it's just it's just weird and i think back to the dynamic of thanksgiving dinner and whether it's you know terry tyler's condo and uh in south bend where we all ate and it was all of us freshmen and gigantic phil hickey and and tony weish and gary bell and then we all passed out watching the cowboys play and then coach woke us up and said hey man we got to go get a second practice And we're like R- what come on man can we just cancel this thing and then you know fast forward to being at Stillwater country club and you know, going through these incredible dishes. And, um, honestly, like my my mom taught me a lot of things, but my mom making me try everything that she ever you got to at least try it. And I, I remember every year I would say like, I'm going to try everything, <laughs> you know, I'm going to try everything. And, uh, you know, I, I, to this day, I know who likes what dish and we would talk about it and we would make fun of dudes and it was great. So, the camaraderie and um, understanding of different cultures and backgrounds. I mean, even Fred Jan who's came from Sweden. And I remember there's a, a noodle dish that he liked that it wasn't this. Obviously he didn't have Thanksgiving and he came to the States and played at Shawnee mission East. And then eventually became a great player at Oklahoma state. I mean, even that is something that I will kind of cherish. So, those little things, the knowledge of your teammates or the kids that play for you, or or anything like that, that's I don't know on a granular level, that's kind of what this is, what this is all about, right? Uh, as far as the hoop, college hoop has been really good, uh, and you know, obviously there's a there's there's some things that are are happening that are just interesting, you know. I mean, let, let's start with I would say November. The story's been HBCUs are winning guarantee games, winning by games. And um, I think a little of it is HBCUs are, you know, they're, they haven't yet hit the travel yet. They're not, because schedules have changed, you know, you're not catching, I mean, like schools like Southern that win some of these games, you go back a couple years ago and, you know, by the time some of these, you know, power fives would catch them, they would be on their like fifth game in six days. The travel is just, and the travel is still going to be hard for them, but it's not, it's, it's just a little bit, a little bit different, but also they have better players because the transfer portal, and there are some good things from it where it's allowed kids to go somewhere and play, but it's also changed very much the the power five schools where it, I mean, you're putting together a new team every year. And that's the your first ball game together, like ever. <laughs> and, if if you've ever, I mean, now obviously coaching AAU, like you add a kid and you collectively have better talent than you had before you added that kid, but you're not a better team until you learn how to play together and you learn how to play for, for the coach and all those things. I think that's honestly probably the bigger dynamic there are, as everybody says in college hoop, there are players everywhere. I've always been players everywhere, but there's especially players everywhere now. Um, and then uh, so, so I think the HBCU's winning games is amazing. It's amazing. amazing. Um, I don't know, in it's sustainability, but we, we can't, what we can't do is we can't do the thing that we've always done for every, for the big, big boys and not do it for the little guys, which means, you know, so oftentimes um, when we get to the NCAA tournament, I'm not saying like an HBCU is going to get um, um, an at-large bid, And it's going to be really hard for them to sustain it because again, their schedules are ridiculous. Um, But we'll do this thing where we'll say, you know, look at this non-conference win. And yet, do you know how hard it is to win a guarantee game on the road? The other part to it, and this is a real thing is attendance is not particularly good in November for these home games. And that creates a much more even playing field. You know, I, obviously at my own moderate Oklahoma state and one because of football season two, I don't really know November games, but you know, they lost to Southern Illinois and uh, obviously they're, they're doing, I think Southern Illinois is pretty good and they, they play a style and uh, they have a level of physicality defensively, which Oklahoma state had a big lead, but was unable to sustain it and, and end up losing at home. But you know, I, when I played there, we would have, 6,300 people in a 6,300 place, even for a game like that. And the crowd would give you like 10 points. No way you're going to lose a game just because the crowd wouldn't let you. Wouldn't let you. We played Oral Roberts my first year there. Barry Henson was the coach. And he was he was crying because he's an OSU alum. He was crying at the press conference. The old girl got us. He was right. Like We didn't win that game. Gallagher won that game. And um, I think that's really changed as – as obviously, some schools are going to, you know, the Dukes of the world draw and draw well, and they even with John Shire they'll continue to do so. But so, if you if you want to break down the why are some of these uh, low majors and HBCUs competitive and even winning these games, I think those are the the factors um, that they still have the energy of taking down David or taking down Goliath, sorry, as David, and uh, I think they have a little bit better players because. Guys, you know, maybe on their last stop, get a chance to transfer in and they're, they're older. Um, and then, you know, the, the lack of cohesiveness of new teams at the power five level. And then you factor in the crowds and, and, and there's kind of some of your story uh, in regards to conference by conference. I'll go through that. But I just I wanted you to have this because uh, Wes Miller is a dude who that's a really amazing story, you know, and, and we'll, we'll cut apart, too, when he has time he was getting ready to leave for Hawaii. But if you ever wondered like how it all happened and if you're not familiar with the story, I mean, I am, uh, I'm not, I'm not a big man, Jenny and Wes is not as big as me. And he became a great player at North Carolina, an unbelievable shooter. But I mean, to, to go to, to go to James Madison And then from James Madison, walk on at North Carolina um, and not just walk on, but become a starter and a star at North Carolina is remarkable. And then the next part to it is, um, I I actually do, I I haven't come around on NIL, but I've sort of come around on NIL. I I don't, (laughs) here's the deal. I don't think in truth that it's healthy. I, I know it's not healthy to use it as a recruiting in, inducement, and that's what it is. And we all knew it was going to happen, and that's what's happened. But what it's what NIL has done in college basketball is because you know um, so many like you know, Oscar Shebue and um, I mean Kofi Coburn shouldn't have gone pro. He should just stayed. He should have stayed in college ten years, right? Those guys don't really have value. In the NBA, that NBA game has changed. And I would expect at some point, the college game, maybe, maybe to fall suit. Maybe, I don't know. Depends on what they do rule wise. But those guys are maybe fringe players in the NBA. Maybe some will be, some won't. But we see this, there's two different types of players that college basketball has, loves, needs, will always have love, need, are great college players, but they're just not great NBA players. And honestly, um, for one position, it it can even be hard at times overseas. Point guard, especially, you know, diminutive guards, smaller guards, and whether a traditional college center or power forward, like the big guys. And they don't, you know, just don't. It was 20 years ago, Oscar Shibwe would be in the NBA starting power forward. Now, like, I don't know, but he's, he's, but he's great in college. Great. I mean, drew Timmy, the same thing. So what the, what the NIL has done is it's put money in these kids pockets so they don't make really bad decisions, like try to go to the NBA draft and not get drafted or, you know, end up in the G league and bounce around and twirl around instead like, play out your college career. And now, obviously, they have money in their pocket when they're done. So, again, I, you guys, you listen to me enough. I, just, I always thought that the NIL is what Wes Miller got, which is he played, he bet on himself, he did great, he's part of the Carolina family. And then everything else you do, everything else you do, the rest of your life is a benefit of playing in North Carolina. He's in the Carolina family. Roy Williams you know, called him right before we did this interview. I mean, that that's, becomes who you are. So I think um, I haven't come around to it, but I understand its value, and I do think that it can do a lot of good for college basketball. Now the question is, can we adjust it to where uh, – can we adjust it to where it's not – you can't give it to kids who haven't played? Can we adjust it so that there's some sort of reasonable scale – so it's not poaching of players and, and, you know, it, along with the transfer portal has made for a wild, wild west of, of the off season. And that has to settle because one reason you will find that across the board, viewership is just, eh, is because, you know, the first two months of the season, you're trying to figure out what he's playing. didn't he Where did he play? He played there. I, I never heard of this dude. So there's good. There's bad. It's a great stuff. But the point of me bringing up the NIL is that this Wes Miller is original old-school NIL. And by that, I don't mean he got paid when he's in North Carolina. By that, I mean he meant his name, image, and likeness benefited greatly and will continue to do so because of his stellar career and how he treated people and how he handles himself at North Carolina. He's gone on to an outstanding coaching career, some of which uh, we'll get into. But without further ado, here's my talk with Wes Miller.
0: Terms apply. learn more at Americanexpress.com/
1: I want to get to where you are now, but where did it start? Where, like when your first plan hoops is in what town where?
2: First, first ever? Yeah? Oh yeah. Uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Where? Where YMCA? downtown YMCA, Greensboro, North Carolina, probably four or five years old.
1: I didn't realize you, that, that your ties to Greensboro go that, like, I mean, in Carolina, like, if you're not from there, like, you just know, like, okay, I know the Triangle, um, you know, I know a couple of Charlotte and a couple of other little areas, and I knew you're from around Greensboro. I didn't know from actual Greensboro, downtown YMCA. So when did you start playing? Like, did you start playing with the, the men?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I was in love with basketball, since I can remember, backyard with my dad. YMCA ball, the earliest possible age you could do it, um, yeah. Like I, I don't think I played with men till much later, but if they would have let me, I would have, you know. But I was, I was fortunate. I had great parents, Doug, and my, my dad went to Wake Forest, played baseball there, but was a like fanatical, bass college basketball fan. And you grow up in Greensboro or North Carolina in those days, you know, like the ACC is at its height in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, Greensboro was where the ACC tournament was every year. So like my first memories of basketball are going to wake forest basketball games or going to ACC tournament games in the Greensboro Coliseum. And, you know, that, and the backyard and the YMCA and Michael Jordan, that that's kind of how I fell in love with it.
1: Okay. So Jordan was your guy when, like, when you, when you played imaginary games would always be Jordan.
2: Oh, Michael Jordan, come fly with me video was like or it was a VHS in those days. That was yeah. like as a kid, i I could quote every line in the video, every highlight, I'd go out in the backyard and try to do it. So that yeah that's probably a pretty good picture of my childhood there.
1: I think it's interesting because part of what people struggle to understand when they do the LeBron Jordan comparison is it was just so very different. You know? Like he was literally everything, <laughs> everything in the league. It it was so different. We also didn't have games on as much. So you didn't see everybody. So I guess you saw the Bulls that they play like on NBC or you'd see highlights and he was always in the highlights. Right. It was just a very different way of ingesting the whole thing. It's
2: it's like hard to describe to kids now because they can see everything on their phones. Right. Um, So they get so much more information and data points like in art. how how big of a deal he was. When we were growing up, yeah, there's nothing you can compare to it in, in anything. By the way, like in any industry, like he's the most famous part, person in the whole world, right? <laughs> I mean, like all over the world. Yes.
1: So, so when you're growing up, your dad went to Wake. Are you a Carolina guy? Are you a Wake guy? Like, what is I? I you know,
2: because again, I hated Carolina. Yeah. Like, well, like I, it was anything but Carolina because you know you grow up in. Like again I, I was in Greensboro till I was born and when I was 10 I moved my mom to Charlotte. So but growing up in in that area in those days especially like Carolina fans are everywhere and they're so good, right? I mean, you know, those are the the 80s and 90s at UNC, right? I mean, you know those teams you you played with a lot of those guys over the years. So I we hated Carolina. I pulled against Carolina. I was the biggest Wake fan. I wore the number 22 my entire career. Because of Randolph Childress, because I was like he was my favorite player ever. You know, to this day, like he's still. The, yeah. The, the,
1: fin- the finger in the in the <laughs> ACC tournament is still the coolest move anyone has ever done.
2: Right. <laughs> That's right. I, I was there. I, you at the game? There. I was. I was there. I was at every single game that tournament. So we would go to the Thursday night game, and those days it was like the eight nine game, and we would watch the we get up. My dad would take us out of school. We'd watch the entire tournament, every single game.
1: Uh, what was it like when you were 10 and you had to move?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, like any kid, when you move, you know, that's a tough thing because you don't want to leave your friends and your comfort zone and all that. But I, then Charlotte became home and I got, I had a great childhood, man, like two loving parents. Um, you know, so then I spent middle school and a little bit of high school in Charlotte. And as I got into college, I always kind of resonated as being more from Charlotte because that was my formidable years. Um, but I, I had not had a great childhood.
1: Uh, okay. So what was high school basketball
2: like? So I went to, went to, to prep school in New Hampshire, a place called New Hampton school. No, but has, first
1: when you went to, we went, didn't you go to high school first in, in the area?
2: I started in Charlotte. Yep. And what, you know, what high school? Charlotte country day. Okay. So I was there middle school, my freshman year, you know, make the varsity, which again, in those days felt like a big deal at the time. And, you know, that's kind of where I turned the corner was between my eighth and ninth grade year. I was, I was probably better at football in those days, to be honest, but was always in love with basketball. And going into my like that summer between eighth and ninth grade, that's when I started to really shoot the ball at a high level. Uh, my dad never let me shoot threes until after eighth grade because he said I wasn't strong enough to shoot with good form. We got to shoot away. And this is the old school shoot away.
1: Okay, so wait, you'd have a the shoot away. So those are like the little rack that like it rolls the ball back to you that you so stand. It's like
2: the gun now, yeah. But it was not electronic. And yeah. instead of it shooting it back, it went through that like funnel, and there was a rack like that came all the way out to like the free throw line, or maybe it could extend to the three. And you just kind of stand there and grab it off the rack and shoot, or you you know, like anybody in the backyard, you find these creative ways, let it bounce and catch it off the dribble. But I had, I had one and I spent the whole summer on it. And that's kind of where I like really turned the corner and started to identify somebody that could really shoot the basketball and I had a really good freshman year.
1: In in your kind of belief system of making a shooter, um, is it reps of the same most basic catch and shoot jump shot? Is it varying it, you know, two or three things because of how the brain works, you know, where you do, you know, catch and shoot, dribble right, dribble left. What's what's your belief in the right way to rep out shots?
2: Yeah, I, for me, it always starts, especially with young players, with the fundamentals, you know, and I'm not as like crazy ritualistic about everything being perfect. But, you know, having a great release, having great rhythm, um, th- those two things are like prerequisites footwork to me. And what you do before the catch is, a, is always been a really big deal to me as a coach and was a big deal as a player. Um, and then I think once you establish like the habits of doing those things, that's when I think you know you get more advanced and start shooting different ways. You know, like I, it maybe as a kid, and early in coaching, I was a really big inside foot guy. Like you're you know you're stepping in left right if you're a right-handed shooter, but if you're coming off of anything, you're inside yeah. foot versus a hop step. i I think the longer I've coached and the the more i've I've watched and learned. I, I don't really get into those semantics. My thing is you got to choose something to be really good at it and really consistent with it when it comes to fundamental things.
1: You'll love this. Okay. So Steph's sophomore year, I go do one of his games. And it might, I actually think it was against Greensboro. Um, Because at the time Greensboro was coached. uh, What's the guy? He came over from SMU.
2: Mike DeMint was there then.
1: Mike DeMitt. right and wasn't demented he was like married to the women's coach at smu
2: yes yes and so i I worked for mike at at uncg not not then though i came after that right but i worked for mike before i got the head coaching job at uncg um so yeah so so
1: here's here's my story okay so bad shooter talking to arguably the greatest shooter to ever play basketball right and he actually and you know he was really young at the time. And he's, I mean, Steph, I know you, you've you met him. He's like the nicest human being ever. Right. So he we're talking after the game and he was like, Hey, anything you saw that you, that, that you would work on if you were me. And I said, look, you, Amir, obviously your dad's an incredible shooter. You're an incredible shooter. I just, everything you do is left, right. Even when you're, you're coming in <laughs> your right shoulder. And I'm like, do you think, can you get that off at the higher level or at the next level? That's my only question is everything you do is left, right. He's like, well, you know, I kind of been tinkering with right, left. I just, I, he, anyway, like (laughs) what he said was exactly what you said, which is like, you know, I kind of decided I just want to be great left, right. And I'm actually going to work on right, left, like this summer, whatever. It's funny you mentioned that, whatever. but like, why am I giving, like why was I giving him any sort of advice? Uh, but it's and, interesting. And the guy, out the guy turns right out right to be step.
2: Huh? the guy turns out to be the greatest shooter in the history of our game, and, and, and it was all,
1: like, all my like, suggestion. Like you should work on right <laughs> left, you know, right left into a shot, inside put, inside put. What, what the hell? Do, what do I know? Um, why did you go to James Madison?
2: Well, uh, like like any youngster, right? I it was a, a quick decision in the springtime of my fifth year high school. And it was the highest level offer. <laughs> you know, I, they were in the Colonial at the time. The, the Colonial had had some success in the tournament. I think George Mason had won a game a couple years before that. And I, and I remembered that. And I felt like the Colonial was the better league. I was being recruited by the Southern Conference and the Ivy League and the Big South and people like that. Um, and I, I had schools that were recruiting me. For years, like you know, Mike Young, when he was an assistant at Wofford, recruited me for like a year and a half. Um, but I, I chose the school that I thought was the highest level, probably for the wrong reasons. And I, I don't say that negatively towards James Madison because James Madison is a wonderful place. I loved my time there. I loved Harrisonburg, Virginia. But I did make a rash decision when I when I made a college decision.
1: Well, Okay. So, what you're, you're at prep? Who is what? What prep did you go to?
2: I went to New Hampton School in New Hampshire. Okay.
1: So who was on your team?
2: I was there for three years. Um, So, gosh, I I played with the the guy that people would know the most is Rashad McCants. He was my, we were AAU teammates and great friends, like best friends, you know, through high school. Um, And then he came to New Hampton after I'd already been there a year. And we were roommates there for two years. And, of course, he went on to be a great player, Carolina, and, uh, you know, lottery pick in the whole nine. Um, but I also played with a guy there named Bernard Robinson who played at Michigan, was a four or five, six year NBA player, um, tremendous, tremendous talent. Uh, Mike Roberts, my assistant here. Uh, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's so many guys. I probably played with twenty some Division one players in three years there. We we had so many really good players.
1: There's so many preps now that are not really preps, right? They're just basketball schools. What was yours? What was your experience?
2: New Hampton's a great school. And it and honestly it was a life-changing experience for me. Um it's uh it's up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. You know, I'm coming from the south. Um so the the winter took some adjusting and all the snow, but just tremendously caring people. I, I had a, a high school coach that was a great mentor in my life, Jamie Arsenal. Um he was a great coach, a great motivator, but also just a great person, like had a had a great family. Would would make us feel as players like we were a part of his family, and then I, I'm you know you're a junkie like I am. Now you put me somewhere where I can walk out of my dorm and get into the gym 24 hours a day. I was going to be really really happy. So from a academic standpoint and an environment, my parents were really happy because they knew I was in a great place. And from a basketball standpoint, I was really happy. Because I could work out as much as I wanted, and I was around a bunch of other players that were trying to do the same thing I was. It was neat to go somewhere and be around 13 other guys that were trying to play college basketball.
1: Um, you go to James Madison. Who's your head coach?
2: I played for Sherman Dillard when I was oh, there. okay freshman year. Yeah, who's a great guy yeah. did a great job there. And you know, now I was with Fran at, at Iowa.
1: Yeah, he's been a fan for, for forever. Okay, so what was freshman year at for the Dukes like?
2: You know what? It was like most freshman years. It was like up and down. Yeah. Um, you know, I had some great moments. You know, I think I scored in double figures a bunch of times and had some great games where I hit a bunch of shots and hit a bunch of threes and felt like, you know, I I was having a good year. And then I had some moments where I stunk. You know, and we had a team that was gifted but was up and down. And probably by the end, felt like it was a disappointing year. I think we won. 15, 16, 17 games, but could have won 20 plus, um, you know, but I had great teammates, still lifelong friends. I, I will say this, Doug, on senior night, it was one of my favorite memories from college basketball. Uh, we were playing against VCU and they were, they were really good. And this was Jeff Capel's team. And I hit two free throws with two seconds left down one to win the game. So that was kind of like a highlight of the year was to. to so that was your last,
1: that was your last. Game, home game at James.
2: The yeah, last home game. Yeah.
1: Okay. So how did it, how, how did it work in terms of, of leaving, you know, now pushing into the portal back then, you know, yes, you, you go meet with your coach. Um, but in, give me the progression of you lose in the colonial tournament and what happens?
2: It, it wasn't one of those things where it was like, I was going to leave, you know um, but as the spring went on, uh there was some stuff going on in the program at the time with within the locker room and I just got to the point I think late in April where I just said you know what like I've spent my entire life trying to get to college basketball like again it was like a dream to be a yeah. player um and you know this, this isn't the kind of environment that I want to you know be in for my whole career like I, I want to I'm looking for something a little different and so late in the spring, I made a a choice to transfer in light of some things that were going on. And, uh, you know, I honestly was looking, Doug, to go to either Columbia or Penn. So Fran Dumpy was at Penn and Joe Jones was at Columbia. One of my assistant coaches from high school was an assistant at Columbia. You know, I visited both places. I don't think Fran really wanted me that bad. So I think we could sense that a little bit because at the time he, he really had Penn rolling. And Joe had just got the job at Columbia and he wanted me badly. And I really wanted to go there. And during that process, and I, in my head, I kind of decided I was going to Columbia. Uh, Roy Williams got the job at North Carolina. He left Kansas to go to Carolina. Um, I knew his assistant, Joe Holiday, because they were recruiting Rashad McCants while I was in prep school. And they would call my phone because, you know, this is when cell phones just came out. So Rashad did not have a cell phone and I did. So all these coaches would call my phone to recruit Rashad. And some of them would be nice enough to talk to me. Most of them would just ask for Rashad. Uh, But Joe Holiday, who's like one of the great guys ever and another mentor in my life, he'd always, you know, he's calling my phone to recruit somebody. So he would actually take time and talk to me. And we got to chop it up quite a bit. So when they got the job at Carolina, I don't know how they got the information, but they called me, said they heard I was transferring and they wanted to talk to me about a a non-scholarship role uh, coming there. And. I went to visit Carolina with my dad in May. And, you know, Coach Williams spent two hours with my dad and I in his office and tried to close me. And I resisted because I thought I wanted to go to Columbia. And after a couple of days, I kind of came to my senses and uh and, and chose to to take the path to go be a non-scholarship player at Carolina. And honestly, Doug, the main reason was that I knew I wanted to coach. And uh Co- Coach Williams was adamant that he couldn't promise anything from a playing perspective but that if I wanted to be a basketball coach, that he would help me and that Carolina would be a great place for me. And that was kind of the defining moment, my decision. Did he help you? Whatever he promised me and my father that day, and in that two hours we spent in his office. And now that I've been through year one in a program like this, the fact that he spent two hours with me still blows my mind to this day because I wasn't that good. Um, But whatever he promised me then, he has followed through times a thousand. I mean, how much he's helped me. I, like I said, I have tremendous parents, like my mom and dad are tremendous people. And if nobody's been more important in my life than them, but outside of that, you know, his impact on my life would, would is it's so great. It's hard to put into words. Um, so he's helped me times a thousand. In fact, I talked to him two hours ago. So he's, he's been great.
1: It's interesting because uh, my experience is the same with my college coach, um, and even uh, Coach McLeod's obviously not here. Um, but Fran, Fran McCaffrey, who recruited me in Notre Dame, I, I think it's one of the things that we do a bad job of helping, maybe the media or kind of the general narrative understand about college athletics. Like you get more than like, well, you get get the, a degree, you get the paper. Like yes, that's important. There's a litany of jobs you can't have unless you have that paper. But more than anything, like you usually get a father figure. Okay, you get kind of a family, right? Like a basketball family, and they will help you out. And um, one, we diminish that with every transfer. You and I are both transfers, um, but it is there's there's a there's a value there which I don't think people understand. You're in the Carolina family. You're in the Carolina basketball family. You're in Roy Williams' family, as well as you're part of all the lives of the players who you played with. Like, that's a really powerful thing that we do a bad job of helping people understand the true value of the experience.
2: That's so well said. No question. And being a part of that hasn't just helped me in in life. Like it's impacted my life, right? It's impacted who I am and what I believe in and in in a really positive way. And like, like coach Williams has as much to do with that as anybody, but it's much broader than one person. Because of the things that you're a part of, as you mentioned, Well said.
1: What What was the moment like when? What What happened first? Did you start first or get on scholarship first?
2: No. So, set. You know, you know those days. You transfer. You got to sit, as you know, when you went yeah. to Notre Dame Oklahoma State. So, my first year there, I'm practicing every day. You know, and the, and you weren't allowed to travel if you were a transfer. I'm sure you went through the same thing. No, so no, I sat, at a junior
1: than, co- I sat at a junior college. I didn't want to do all of it. that.
2: That's right. I forgot that. You told
1: me. I that. did. So, I got the AA at the junior college and I could transfer right away. So you didn't do the sit out year? No, I sat out, but I sat out. What I did was I, I went to Golden West College. Tom McCluskey, who was my high school coach my freshman year, was the coach there. So he let me practice with the team, train with the team, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, I had to make like part of the deal was like, hey, listen, you got to, you don't have to like lift with us and stuff, but you got to be a practice every time we have practice. And then I helped him coach. Like I was like his third assistant and it was, he let me draw plays and things like that. But that's what I did instead of sitting out. So you're sitting out,
2: right? Practicing every day. And the only thing I wasn't a part of was travel because of the rules at the time. And I'm guarding Raymond Felton in practice every day. And to this day, like my, that was my sit out year. So Red shirt freshman year, whatever. Then the following years, my sophomore year, we went in the national championship. And then my junior year is when I ended up starting and having a personally a great year. We finished like 10th in the country. Well, go back for two years my sit out year and then my first year eligible at Carolina. So my first two years, I play against Raymond Felton every single day. And without that experience, I never play a significant minute at Carolina. Like, it was the best thing that ever happened to me as a player because he was so good. And, like, he – I mean, he had this incredible, long NBA career. Like, sometimes guys that don't become all-stars don't get the kind of, like, attention. But, like, you and I know as players, you play over 10 years in the NBA at point guard. Like, that is <laughs> – that's unbelievable, right? Like, shit, you play a day in the NBA at point guard. Right. At, I mean, at his size,
1: yeah. our size. Like, come on, man.
2: There's only 450 jobs in the world, you know, and this guy played over 10. And I can't tell you how good he was at that age. He was so athletic and fast and played hard every day. Um, He really was like the heart and soul of my first two years there of the team. But having to figure out how to compete with him is the best thing that ever happened to me because I couldn't stay in front of him when I first got there. I couldn't handle the ball around him consistently and make good decisions. But by, you know, that like midway through that first year I was there, I started figuring out how to function on a court with a player that good. And I really credit him to being the reason that I was able to defend at a really high level when, when I got my chance a couple of years later. But I got a scholarship to answer your question. The second year I was there. So my, my second year at Carolina, my sophomore year, they rewarded me with the scholarship, um, even though I didn't have a real significant role in that team.
1: What was it like to play against Wake?
2: Well, it, like I was a kid growing up as a Wake fan, but after being at Carolina for a week, like I it, felt it's like, a week? I, yeah, like it like I felt like my dad had just brainwashed me my whole childhood. <laughs> like it's like, oh, I saw the what? light. Oh, no, you, hated, you hated
1: them, too. You're like, why did I hate them? Like this, this place is awesome. Great, right?
2: <laughs> so uh, so no, it, by that point, it, it didn't matter. I, I'll tell you, though, like I really wanted to go to Davidson out of high school. And they, you know, Coach McKillop recruited me, but they never offered me and they kept coming back and watching. And that's where I wanted to go to school. Like, you know, again, I grew up in the area in Charlotte. And and so we played Davidson, you know, when I was in college, I felt like that was my Super Bowl. I wanted to beat them so badly because I felt like they would passed up on me, that type of thing.
1: winning a national championship what do you, what what are your mem- your personal memories of
2: man it it's like a blur still to this day like that run in 2005 that was my second year there i was eligible played sparingly you know at best i mean gosh one one time coach williams hadn't put me in a game in three or four games and we're playing at duke And at the end of the half, we're on D at on the last possession. You know, at the end of the half, and he like subs me in to play a defensive possession.
0: (laughs) I'm
2: like checking into the Duke game, like nervous as can be. But I I didn't play much. Yeah, I got thrown into some games like that. Um, But no, but you're
1: still processing and learning and watching. You know, what's interesting about Coach Williams is, um, I mean, like you and I could, okay, first time out, he's going to trap out of the timeout. Like we we know what's coming, but it works and offensive philosophy is pretty simple right Carolina secondary into you have a couple of sets but outside of that move the ball open man gets kind of gets the ball um and he does kind of have reputation wise it's and I remember that team. I remember that team in 05 being kind of one of his first that didn't have a super deep bench right and he would get himself in trouble sometimes that Carolina thing seven too many guys but as you said you went there to be a coach anything that you thought you remember you you recall upon that you bring back even to this day as a coach. now.
2: this would be a whole podcast. Like answering that Good. question, be a whole podcast. Like
1: Good. I, that's, that's actually the meat of why, like no offense to your team now. Like this is the, this is the shit that nobody talks about, right? Is the stuff that you're processing. And I mean, now that you're able to put into play.
2: I mean, Doug, like every single day, every single day, I do things as a head coach at cincinnati and i think about coach williams and his approach and why he did what we did and what i learned there and i would say that the foundational values are the are the foundation of what i believe as a basketball coach that's directly derived from my time playing for him spending time around him working around him like trying to learn from him like that that's the foundation of who i am as a coach and i i draw from like those moments around him not just playing but since then every single day um i, I remember because I, I was thinking about coaching at that time and i remember being in timeouts during my red shirt year there and just listening to him and being kind of amazed like how did he remember what happened six possessions ago you know or like
0: like It's how so he,
1: funny, though. Like, I caught myself doing that yesterday. Yesterday, I was coaching, like, my son or whatever. And I was like, you know, you got to help down on there. Help the helper. And there and the, the kids, they, <laughs> they they just can't do it. They don't have the same brain that we have. We're talking two possessions ago. Like, no, no, no. I, didn't, I boxed out, like, no, the possession before that. I have no idea what you're talking about,
2: Coach. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting there and being like, he's on it. Yes. You know, um, and it's like things like that. But I, it wasn't just... Like it was little stuff. It was big stuff. I, I thought he cultivated team better than anybody I've ever been around. How? There's no one way. It was just constant. Like he's constantly preaching to play the right way, to share the ball. Like you just said, like make the easy pass, to not take a bad shot, to do your job, whatever your job was. You know, like he was relentless about the things that he believed. And by the way, the things he believed, you know, they win, right? And he was relentless about buying into the team and making sacrifices. And there's no one way. Like, it, you know, you go to style of play, like he played so fast his whole career. And everybody always asks, how does he get him to play that fast? And it's like, go watch practice. Like it's relentless. There's no drill. It's just everything they do is like this. Every practice, he he emphasizes it on every single possession. I think he's the best rebounding coach uh, in, in Kyle's basketball history. I mean, go go look at the numbers. It's staggering, right? I mean, they they lead the country in rebounding margin like almost every year he coaches or their top two or three or whatever. Well, why? He doesn't do these great rebounding drills. He just coaches rebounding every single possession, recruits to it, values it. So like he just, he knew he had an identity, knew who he was as a coach, knew what he believed in, and he relentlessly pursued it. And I always thought it was funny Cause I, you know, like, he was the head coach at Kansas when I'm growing up, so I'm watching him in press conferences, or you're watching him get interviewed, and you're going, "Man, he's the nicest guy." And then you get out and practice, and you, whoever that guy was on TV, that's not the guy I'm playing for. <laughs> like he, no. he, was, he was like really demanding, incredibly competitive. Maybe he's competitive to anybody. I've ever been around
1: now. He was big on short practices in conference play, right? Like that's the, again, I I'm just going, I'm not, I didn't play for him. So I remember like he was big on saving your legs, but it was also like, that's how he's been. He was that indefatigable recruiter, right? Like early practice hour and a half hit the private jet and be at somebody's game that, that night. So were the practices short or
2: long? (laughs) I think it got a little shorter after I left. Um, you know, I think that 05 team and that team was together for more than two years, most of those guys, yeah. but like I was there for two years. So the two years that I was with that 05 team, you know, he was coming in and trying to set a tone and change the culture and change the approach. I don't remember anything being short or, or easy. Like it we, was, we had it one, was a fight.
1: So, so I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of Eddie Sutton coaching things that I I recognize to this day And I struggle with what I would do in a college setting, in a youth setting. It's a little different. So his philosophy is a little different. Like he would define who we're going to. And we could be playing Texas or Texas, San Antonio. We're playing Texas, San Antonio. And there's seven minutes left to go in the game. And we're up 35. and We're running something for Adrian Peterson, Desmond Mason. And they're open, they're catching, they're shooting the basketball. Why? Because when we play Texas, we play the University of Kansas, we play Oklahoma. <laughs> Damn it, Desmond Mason, Adrian Peterson, got to give us 20, right? Like, you guys got to get in where you get in. Anyway, that was his, his belief was that based upon what he would see and observe in practice, what was kind of the obvious pecking order in games was he would he didn't wait for roles to define themselves. Like, he would define them for you based upon how he coached you, how he played you, and whatever. And he was one of those guys where he would pick who's, who we're going to and, and then we'd score. And what I pushed him for was kind of what Coach Williams does, which is pushing the basketball. And, you know, when I got there, he had the reputation of playing slower. And he'd tell you, like, I play every play, but why would I play fast if we don't have a point guard and we're going to throw it in the stands and be back on defense, you know? So the years he had me or Brooks Thompson, you know, we scored 85 a game. The years he didn't, you know, he scored 65 a game. Like, that's kind of coaching 101. Um, and then he, we had this great argument. It was like one of my first days of practice. And we used to run, it was a, it was a drive and seal drill. So back then we used to post double seal, rotate, work on it every day. Also drive the guy to the help in the baseline, that guy walls off, you reverse pivot and you're out, you're sprinting and identifying who you pick up in the scramble. right? Drive and seal. So, but before we got to drive and seal, we, you do one-on-one, like one-on-one on the sideline. Right? So I was like, coach, are we forcing baseline? No, we're not letting go baseline. <laughs> oh, so I it. like, oh, no, do not let him get in the paint. Like, well, coach, if I'm not supposed to send him baseline, I'm not supposed to send the middle. Like, where am I supposed to send him? And he goes, a college man needs to guard his man. I don't know <laughs> where to, The only good place you're going to send you is to the bench if you can't guard his ass, right? Like, so then the other guys come up and they grab you like, Look, we got the help to the baseline, just don't open the gate, right? But that was that was his kind of defensive philosophy was like dude, a college man guard his man, but generally we force base.
2: <laughs> Coach Brown, Larry Brown, who's been yeah. great to me as well. He he's 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 the best. But he he says all the time, you know, if you can just guard your guy, you don't have to help, you know, just like make your guys guard their guard their guy, <laughs> like then there's no help. And it's <laughs> very easy. Help. You know, Coach, you're probably right. And, you know, like Allen Iverson and Snow, those guys didn't need any help when they wanted to the guard, right? But, shoot, we, we got to get some help sometimes. So Got to give me some help.
1: Um, what was it like to go from a recruited walk-on, right, he was getting his ass kicked in practice, to your junior year, now all of a sudden, like, you're blowing up. You're having a, a great person here. What was, what was that like for you
2: personally? It was incredible. Um, you know, I, 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 I had a like a pretty strong work ethic. Maybe, maybe I was overboard if you ask people from those days. Like, I, I probably did too much. Um, what is too much on a daily basis? I just was in the gym too much, right? I was on my feet too much, or right? I, like, I wanted to do anything I possibly could. I was obsessed. Um, which is, is a coach. Well, I like kids that are like that, right? Like uh, we were trying to recruit players that have that type of approach. Um, But I, I, so I, I put, you know, life into it, heart and soul into it. So to get that validation, I think that's like, that was really important for me as a, as a college student was that the idea that if you really, really keep working for something, eventually it's going to happen. Right. And it didn't happen early. Like I, my second year at Carolina was really hard. We ended up winning the national championship. So now you look back and it was this incredible experience, but I was really frustrated personally that year because I wanted to play so bad and I wasn't playing. So it didn't happen right away. But as you mentioned, my third year there, you know, broke through and certainly was fortunate, you know, that, you know, we won the national championship, four guys get drafted in the the lottery, you know, three seniors graduate. I think J.R. Smith was supposed to come in and played well in the McDonald's game and go like a bunch of stuff. I did the
1: McDonald's game and he, he went from being a guy going to Carolina to a first round pick.
2: So like a bunch of stuff worked out that all of a sudden, you know, I'm in this position where I had an opportunity, but actually having it work. I I just, I think that gave me a lot of confidence going forward in life that if, if you just kind of stay with something, you know, eventually it's going to happen.
1: But I don't know if people understand how difficult that is within the same program, you know, that's really, really hard to do because there's always going to be people, especially players, who is like, "Oh, he's a walk-on. Uh, they gave him a scholarship. But he's he's a walk-on. He's a local kid. He's a walk-on. He's a shooter." They like, like to break. You have to break through not just the respect factor of opponents. Like you can do that. It's almost harder in your own locker room to, like, I, yeah, I barely played last year, but now I'm the guy and I deserve this. I mean, I'm sure they all saw your work ethic, but there's still always going to be people who. I mean, Carolina recruits dude after dude, after dude, after dude, all American. So for you to break through in the same program is even more impressive.
2: Well, thanks. Yeah, I I think, again, like looking back at it, I think when I when I decided to go to school there, it was you you understand what you're walking into, that you're every year, the best players in the country are going to be coming in here. And coach was very honest about that, you know, when when we were talking. Um, But I made a decision that I was going to. I was going to not back down. I believed I could play at that level and I was going to try to do everything I could every day. So uh, even though now I look back as a coach and know I wasn't very good, you couldn't tell me that I wasn't as good as the guys I was competing against in the time. Like I thought I was as good as Raymond Felton, even though I wasn't even the same stratosphere or when Ty Lawson came in. Like I believed eternally. And so there I probably had a healthy confidence or swag at that time. Just but I I do believe because of of the work I was putting in. Um, I
1: know I know you got to go, but i want, want to, I want to ask you this, okay? So we're talking roughly 10, fifteen years later. If I would have told you that this, the all this success at Greensboro and now being the head coach of Cincinnati and you had a bunch of different options on where to choose for your next you know you you were off for jobs several several times over. Um, what would your reaction to your success as a coach? Be like if I would have told you that when you were a college player.
2: Wow, it's a it's a great question. I'm trying to answer it really honestly. I don't know. I mean, I think I'll give you what I think the real answer is. As a college player, I was probably you know ignorant enough or naive enough. Think you could do it? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get. I'm I'm, you know I'm gonna get into coaching and have a lot of success. Um, As I got into coaching at an early age, um, and actually realized how difficult this is and how small, I mean, we're in a small niche business, right? I mean, there's only 350 some jobs, division one in the entire country. I think after my first two or three years in coaching, I, my perspective changed. I got a lot more respect for what this is. And if you'd asked me what I thought then I would say, Man, I'd be the happiest person in the world knowing this was going to happen because that means I'm living my dream out. And my dream has always been to be a head coach and to coach somewhere where there's tradition and history and it really, really matters. And now I'm doing that. I mean, I'm, you know, like I had this great playing career at North Carolina in a place like that. Now I'm coaching at a place like that. And that's, that's kind of always been the dream. And not only that, somewhere that like identifies with, you know, my values. Like I, I think at Cincinnati. There's just a lot of shared values between what I believe, how I believe the game and a program should be approached and what people here value. So yeah, like I got, I'd have said, man, I'm living my dream now in college. Who knows? Cause I was a dumb college dude, but who knows?
1: You know, you know, uh, I would say a lot of people would think Wes Miller would recruit other Wes Millers, right guys. But I, I actually think and you, again, tell me if I'm wrong, but you talk about the fundamentals of who you are as a person, you can recruit other Wes Millers. They just may not be, you know, five, 10 kids from, from Carolina, right? It's the, it's the intense focus and desire and the, the gym rat, the toughness that you had. Is that fair? Is that, are those the, the things you look at when you're trying to recruit a player? Yes. I want another Wes Miller but I don't necessarily need another Wes Miller in terms of size.
2: I don't want to recruit anybody that's built like me. <laughs> that's uh, true. I
1: don't know. If you shoot and pass like you, you're, there's, there's, a, there's definitely an intrinsic
2: value there. You, you know, I, yeah. So I, don't, I definitely don't try to recruit my physical dimensions. Um, but I, it's a great question. What what we value in recruiting is edge. Like we we want guys with some serious competitive edge and you know how you you can see it when you see it so like that's the one we want guys that absolutely love basketball that are like truly passionate about it um and we want dudes that love to work at it that like love the day-to-day process of growing and getting better um and, and certainly we're looking for you know people that value education and all that i'm not diminishing that but if we're just talking hoops that's and i and i think that aligns with the way that I thought about it as a player in the way that I still think about it as a coach. And you know, this we're all better coaches when we have shared values with the people around us. And so, yeah, we're looking for that. We got a kid committed to us right now. He, he signed so I can speak about him publicly. Yeah. His name's Jizzle James. He's Edron James's son. Yeah. He's a top 50 point guard in the class. I, I think he's the best point guard in the dang class and he is the toughest dude. He's the hardest worker. He has a crazy competitive edge. And so, like, you're right. Now, he's 6'2", and, you know, really explosive and strong and got, got good dimensions. So, he looks nothing like me. But, but shared values in terms of the other stuff. That's right. I resonate with the way that he approaches it. And when I see him play, I go, I want to coach him. It was, it was that significant. So, I don't know if it's always about me as a player, but definitely the way that I think about basketball.
1: There is one element, though, to taking this job outside of uh, the Carolina region is you're revered in Carolina. You're revered. You know, I did the game in Greensboro. Like you're revered in Greensboro, you're revered in Carolina. So you have equity there. Now you go first head coaching job kind of out of your traditional market where you have all that equity, not just as a coach, but as a player and as a human being. What's that like to walk into gyms and like, look, hey, you gyms, obviously everybody knows you've been doing this a long time, but but to, to meet people and you don't have that same, oh, Wes Miller, I remember him, Carolina.
2: May, you know, self-made dude? Yeah, I don't know if I thought about it exactly that way, but what what is, there's two, two ways I'd answer that. First, what's neat about being the head coach at Cincinnati is when you're in this position, it's a big deal. It doesn't matter who you are. When you're the head coach at Cincinnati in this area, it's a big deal. And so you're not known per se because of, you know, like you said, what you did as a player or what you did at, you know, growing up in that area, you're known because of the position that you're in. And that's, that's different, but that also gives me great respect for where I am and what I'm doing. Um, but the, the part that has been a transition is I moved somewhere that I've never been. I'd never been to the city of Cincinnati when I took the job here. Now I had the shorts off East Bay. Like, I you know, I love Nick Van Exel and like, is, you know, like yeah. I, I had the shorts off East Bay growing up um and the young people don't even know what East Bay is but like they still have it they even have it okay so they still have it still can order shoes out there still can order gear yeah. out there right? <laughs> I had the shorts like I was yeah. a, I knew Cincinnati basketball but I'd never been in this community and didn't have family in this community friends in this community so moving somewhere where you know absolutely nobody you don't know any neighborhood you know you have no frame of reference for what's around you that was uncomfortable but in a really healthy way like it, it gave me energy actually it was sometimes it's great to step out of your comfort zone a little bit i do i do think that's where you really grow and get better yeah it,
1: it's a uh, last thing i know you gotta go and again we say said last thing sometimes xavier cincinnati crosstown rivalry compare and contrast that to duke carolina
2: <laughs> first things first it's more intense And I know people like they're Duke and Carolina people think I'm crazy when I say that I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not just selling it because I'm the head coach at Cincinnati. One of our players walked in. We're almost almost done. Josh Reed, get your
1: coach back in a second. You're on
2: a podcast, okay? Uh, Give me a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, The open door policy with the players, but um, and he's going to be a good one. But uh, but no, people think I'm crazy. I'm serious. We we walked into CentOS last year. And I'm walking, I, I'm sitting in the locker room waiting, and it is so loud in the locker room. I'm like, wow, this is wild. And I walk out of the tunnel. I don't think I could hear anything the entire game. Our players couldn't hear each other in timeouts. They couldn't hear me. I couldn't make a play call. And and it's, a, it's nasty. It's only a mile or so away. Uh, so it's a more intense thing, I think, because it's even closer. D- Duke and Carolina are eight miles apart, but Durham and Chapel Hill are different towns, different communities, right? Cincinnati and Xavier are in the same city, you know, and this is a prideful sports city. And so I I think it's neat because we're the majority in this city. I mean, this is a we're a state school. There's this is a bearcat town. Xavier fans are a minority because it's a smaller school. They won't like me saying that, but it's the truth. But they really? are loud yeah. and they are passionate. And I, I was blown away with it. I really was we didn't play well um so it could have been even better but i was blown away now the biggest difference in the rivalry is the duke carolina game gets so much more national attention and exposure like that's probably the biggest difference i think this one's maybe more heated and more intense
1: all right listen you got to go you got a player waiting for you um i have open door policy because i have a bunch more stuff i want to get to but so far this has been amazing um best of luck uh obviously i know you got maui as well so Thanks so much for joining us. Safe travels, and we'll catch up whenever you're available.
2: Thanks, Doug. I, you know, growing up, I was a huge fan because there, there weren't many guys. There weren't many short white guys playing high-level
1: we, we, got, we got That's the podcast we should do, yeah. okay, is we just go through all the – because I don't know if you remember. Here's a guy, State of Ohio remembers, Jay Burson. You ever heard Jay Burson? No, no. Jay Burson was at Ohio State. I think he was like 22, 23 a game. Baller. He broke his neck. I guess against Iowa, right? Never the same. But, like, it was Scott Skiles and Jay Burson, like, in the Big Ten. Like, you'd, you'd, you'd scan the TV and you go, like, oh, Bobby Hurley looks like me. Wes Miller looks like me, right? That's yeah. the guy. And uh, there was, there There's was no there question.
2: Guys. Like, you try to, I try to figure it out in high school all the time. Like, can I do it? Like, I know I can do it. But where are the examples? You know, totally. you, Doug Gottlieb, you know. And, by the way, like, I can shoot better than him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. But, but you were, you were one of my, you were one of my favorite guys to watch cause you created some belief and you were a way better player than I ever dreamed about being obviously. But, um, so I was always a fan growing up.
1: Well, well the, the likewise, he have been covering you. So let's do it again. Get your play. I mean, I really appreciate your
2: time. Anytime. Thanks. Doug. thanks Wes All
1: right. That's part one. He's committed to part two. We'll take a bit. We'll take a deep dive in and, uh, and and get into more of the coaching stuff. And, and he, he we'll talk about a couple of jobs that people thought he was going to get and he didn't get and what Cincinnati's been like and how they can take the step to getting Cincinnati back to where it had been, not just with Mick Cronin, but obviously with Bob Huggins. How hard is that to do? We'll, we'll discuss next time. In the meantime, uh, hug, those, hug those kiddos and uh, be kind to your elders. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And the intent of dropping it on Thanksgiving Day is so that throughout the weekend, a lot of you are taking long trips. Uh, hope you're nice enough to plug in the podcast. Any of them, There's you go back, there's some great stuff in here. Um, you kind of go back through the catalog and and, and look. Um, anyway, uh, a reminder, the Doug Gottlieb show is daily. So it's it's actually now three to five Eastern time. And then at five, we drop a live pod and it's called In the Bonus. You can download that anywhere, you, even where you download this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have a great weekend. And we'll get back to talking more of the granular details of of Hoop upcoming. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is all Ball.